This is Car Expert. Alfa Romeo is running out of excuses and it also needs something to really keep it rolling in Australia. Hopefully this is the start of a more exciting era. Is the Ford a $12,000 better car? Because that buys you with half of a second stunning. This is a performance M. This is not a full strength M car. What will the i4M do? Hello to you, Scott Colley. Hello, Mandy Turner. And hello, James Wong. Hello, hello. Now, I'd love to put this question to you guys. Uh, A car expert subscriber and listener, Nathan, he said, our large car is a Volkswagen multivan, which I was so excited about because those things are amazing. And I want to get a small performance hatch, a sedan or a wagon to complement it. Needs to be four or five door and comfortable enough on the highway. I'll be definitely buying used, probably three to four years old. His shortlist is a Golf GTI or R, BMW 330i, 340i, 135, 140i, Octavia RS, i30N, and Lexus ISF. Might start with you first, Joe. (laughs) Which one would you recommend? Oh, well, obviously the ultimate in all-round ability is the Golf GTI. As a current (laughs) owner, I'm not biased at all. Um, (laughs) But I think that shortlist alone just shows how many amazing options are out there. Like Mm. all of those cars are great, provided the two 1 Series models are the last generation, not the current one, I will say. But um, all of those sound really great. I don't even know it. It would... my recommendation would be based on what the kind of person that your your friend or colleague colleague is because you know i don't necessarily need a rear drive sedan for example so like the three series sounds great and if you can put up with maybe getting a slightly older model for similar money to some of those hot hatchbacks and you don't necessarily need all the latest tech, then you know that might be a really fun, engaging experience for somebody who likes a bigger engine and the sound that comes with an inline six BMW. But then at the same time, the the practicality and usability of a, a compact hot hatch, like a, a Golf R, is all the car that most people will ever need. Mm. So, I think of all of those cars, the most interesting is the ISF. Lexus is known for being really boring. Um, at risk of whacking Lexus within four minutes of starting the podcast. Um, but that ISF and the engine that's in it, the V8, is just one of the great engines. It's in the GSF uh, and also in the a version of it's in the LC500 as well. Um, there's a lot of cars that have, have got that engine and all of them just sound incredible. So I know fuel's really expensive at the moment. I know the Golf is the smart choice and the BMW is going to be a better long-term car on the highway, that sort of thing. But... God, buy the Lexus, make V8 noises, enjoy them while you can. <laughs> oh, boy, that's um, that's going to be a tough one for Nathan to figure out. But, um, yeah, hopefully he'll let us know which one he ends up settling on. Um, did you guys see oh, – obviously you did – the Porsche 911 Sports Classic model? Oh, now, boy. actually, Mandy, you know I'm partial to a Porsche and partial to a guessing game. Do you know the price off the top of your head? I don't know. Okay. So, what do you think? And I'm going to give you some context here. It's got a 911 turbo engine, so it's got 405 kilowatts, but it's a manual and it's rear-wheel drive. They're building just 1,250 of them, and the previous one, they made a 997 generation version of this, is one of the highest value collector modern Porsches that's out there. It's a really, really valuable car. What do you reckon the list price on this is in Australia? I, I, the, the first price that came to mind was 420 Oh, you're going to have to go higher. Oh, really? 460? Oh, Mandy. James, do you have a guess? (laughs) Wow. Um, Well, I actually haven't read the story yet, but I did see pictures of this. And now that you've explained that it has not only the turbo engine, but a special manual transmission for it, I reckon it's in the 750 range. Really? It's sort of in between 599. Uh Oh. Ouch. (laughs) Start saving. Nathan, maybe if you want something really impractical. It's from the Volkswagen Group. It'll look good next to the multivan. <laughs> but it's so pretty. I just, oh, I don't know whether it's worth that amount of money, but oof. There are a few things better than like a, a ducktail spoiler on a Porsche 911. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Um, yeah, head to the website, check out the photos, let us know what, uh, what you think. But in the meantime, we are going to get into news. Once again, we bring in Jack Quick to cover off this week's news. G'day, Jack. Hello, Mandy. How are you? Very well, thank you. Always love your enthusiasm. (laughs) (laughs) 
Now, it appears another model has been affected by COVID. Which one is this one? So, yes, so this one is the Ford Ranger, which is um, Ford's most important, as I would like to say, new vehicle that's going to be coming in this year. Um, So, yeah, it has been affected by um, COVID lockdowns in China. Um, So, this was... uh, uh, surfaced in a dealer bulletin that was shared on Facebook that indicates there's going to be fewer examples um, that will be initially coming, which does mean as well that um, wait times are going to be extended to the dismay of everyone that really likes the look of the new Ranger, myself included. Um, so originally there's going to be about 7,000, 7,500 coming, but we don't know exactly how how many less that's going to be, but that's not very many to start with. So it's going to be interesting to see what actually happens when it arrives. Um, it's actually going to be coming in uh, June 2022. So that um, arrival date and the start of sales hasn't changed just yet, but there's just going to be less of them, which is a little bit sad. And um, the, that only includes like the core Ranger range. Oh, that's a weird thing to say. <laughs> um, with the, the um, high performance, um, the Baja Ready Ranger Raptor coming at a later date in a few months' time after the regular Ranger um, comes. And uh, another vehicle that's um, had a similar thing that happened at the same time as in like with um, COVID delays is the Nissan Z. So the sports car from Nissan, which is also a really important model for Nissan, has also been experiencing some delays and we won't be seeing that for a little while, which is also unfortunate. Um, But I have a question for you guys. Do you think this, um, uh, the cut in production with less coming was inevitable for the Ford Ranger? I think with any new car at the moment, with what's going on around the world, there's going to be some sort of challenges. We've seen it for everyone from Kia all the way through to Mercedes-Benz and bigger, more luxurious, more expensive cars than that again. I think the disappointing thing with the Ranger is initially it looked like there was going to be decent stock levels and there's a lot of people who put their name down, put deposits down, I've spoken to dealers under the understanding that they would be getting a car in that first batch that now might not be. And obviously the dealers haven't lied to them or done anything wrong, but there are people who thought one thing was going to happen and now not all that far out from when their car was meant to be arriving, the rug's been pulled. So it's disappointing. But yeah, I think at the moment, anyone launching a new car knows it's it's very tricky to forecast what's going to happen. Next story. Oh, finally, Jack, Alfa Romeo has joined the five-year warranty crew. So yes, yeah, for a long time, Alfa Romeo was one of those premium luxury brands that was sticking to the three-year warranty and it was so not stubborn. budging, but now it's joined the pack. It was what, what I would like to call more of the standard for 2022. Uh, so Alfa Romeo is getting uh, changed to a five-year unlimited kilometre warranty, um, and this applies to all Alfa Romeo, new Alfa Romeo vehicles um, sold and registered from April 2020 uh, into April 22 this year. Sorry, that's why lots of twos. Um, so it's also not only with the warranty being extended to, to five years, that also applies to the roadside assistance, um, which has gone from three years to five years of coverage. Um, so with this change to five years, Alfa Romeo is trying to um, change its brand and perception to kind of um, reassure um, customers, um, potential customers, that their vehicles are reliable, which has kind of been questionable in the past, I would say. Um, so we'll have to see what that has that means in the future. But with the five-year warranty, obviously Alfa Romeo was confident that it's going to the vehicle is going to work over that period of time. And if something does go wrong, they'll fix it. So you're covered in that sense. Um, so, But the reason for this, um, another reason for this five-year warranty um, uh, extension from the three years is Alfa Romeo is planning for a lot of vehicles to be coming in the next few years. The, the one that first comes to mind for myself is the Tonale, which is going to be coming um, early next year or like half in the first half of next year. But then Alfa Romeo has also said that it's going to be launching one vehicle every year until 2026. So we're going to see a lot, uh, going to be seeing a lot of new Alfa Romeo vehicles, and um, I think that's really exciting for the brand. Um, as Stellantis, um, the Stellantis CEO has said in the past, um, it's giving every vehicle, uh, every um, brand in the under the umbrella, a chance to um, expand and um, kind of prosper, giving them a bit of hope, and um, which is really exciting to see as well. But um. Uh, as we know, for a lot of other premium automakers such as um, BMW, Maserati and Porsche, they're sticking to the three years. So 
I personally don't think that's good enough. I've said it on the part in the past and on the podcast um, that it's not really good enough. But what do you guys reckon? Um, is three years good or uh, bad? What do you reckon? I think it's about time that Alfa Romeo moved to a five-year warranty because I, I think the company knows and is well aware of the perception around um, reliability or that kind of stuff. And it also adds to the, the resale value of a vehicle when it comes to selling. If someone is to sell in three years, it's still at least covered for another two, that which might get someone over the line. Um, I think now we're seeing across the industry that the standard is at least five years and there's a number of brands, mainly premium ones, that are sticking with three. And I think just whether the customers are going to hold onto the car to three for three or five years or even longer, I think it still um, shows that you're backing your product and you're assuring the customers of the after-sales support by um, covering a vehicle for a minimum of five, which I think is should be the benchmark. And I think that's echoed throughout our team that that should at least be the standard. I think it's also, it's good that Alfa Romeo has done this because it brings it into line with the other brands in the Stellantis family. I know that these brands are still relatively new as part of a a big group. They were Fiat Chrysler and Peugeot Citroën, but ultimately they are now part of the same automotive group. And to have some brands with three, some years, some with five, didn't really make all that much sense, especially when now Audi's moved to five years most of the Volkswagen groups on the same page there as well. So Alfa Romeo was running out of excuses and it also needs something to really keep it rolling in Australia. Hopefully this is the start of a a more exciting era. Mm, Absolutely. Um, Now, Jack, the Mitsubishi Express, it's been axed, which is a a bit of a surprise because we all love our vans. Yeah, so yeah, vans have been really excelling in the sales recently, but yeah, Mitsubishi is getting rid of the Express, um, very ex- in very much of an Express kind of way. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, Mitsubishi is going to be exiting the van segment, um, which is a little bit sad, I'd have to say, because um, the Express, if you didn't already know, is uh, like a rebadged version of the Renault Traffic. Um, which is um, a very well-selling, uh, top-selling van in the segment. And um, it's surprising that Mitsubishi is getting rid of the Express. For, uh, it's only, it was only on sale for like less than two years, which is really, really uh, shocking. It's such – I'll get into it in a sec though, but it's, yeah, it's a little bit shocking. So Mitsubishi expects that um, supply of the long wheel-based models to last until the mid-year, uh, mid-year of 2022, and then on the short wheel-based um, models to last until the end of the year. So it's going to be gone sooner than we think. Um, but, yeah – the Mitsubishi Express, the reason, potential reason why it might be going is that um, it was an, uh, originally slammed with a zero-star zero ANCAP safety rating, which was kind of like a big deal because it was such a, sh- a shock for myself, the zero-star ANCAP rating. This is because it was missing um, certain safety features such as AEB, lane keep assist, and blind spot monitoring, which is standard on a whole range of not only vans but cars like every every car that i can think of has those features so it's kind of shocking that the express didn't have it have it but it does kind of make sense when you think about it um mitsubishi uh, uh ancap rating the the express with zero stars but um what do you guys reckon are you surprised that mitsubishi is axing the express no not really um at risk <laughs> of being a bit blunt i think the zero star ancap rating although a lot was made of it, and we've covered this on the podcast and on the website before, was also ANCAP doing its best to get a bit of coverage and, and get its name in the spotlight and, and some of its new standards in the spotlight because the traffic, although it was structurally identical, had a different mm. rating. Mm. Um, Mitsubishi knew that it was an older car when it introduced it. There were risks there, all that sort of thing. I think the thing that's surprising with the – or the only thing that's surprising with the Express is – the way that it was spec to start with, mm. Mitsubishi launched it with barely any equipment. It had a, an old-fashioned phone holder and an old-fashioned radio and almost nothing inside, but it priced it like a much more generously equipped van and in line with stuff like the traffic and, and more established nameplates in Australia. So I don't think Mitsubishi necessarily gave it much of a chance to succeed, and to be honest, it's not a, a great surprise to see it gone. Yeah. I, um, one thing that I should mention as well, that the, um, uh, the Express was actually designed kind of especially for the Australian market. So it was a big deal for Mitsubishi and to pull it from sale in less than two years is a little sad and shocking, that, but it doesn't make sense when you think about all of the things with the zero, car, uh, zero star ANCAP rating. But yeah, 
Yeah. Okay, and our last story, Jack, the Chevrolet Corvette Hybrid is coming next year. So, yes, the Corvette, you always think about the rumbling V8 <laughs> and the the was front-mounted front, end, front uh, engine and now uh, mid-mounted engine um, is now going electrified. So, yes, Chevrolet has confirmed on Twitter there's going to be an electrified version of the Corvette coming in 2023, um, which is very soon, and um, and there's also going to be an, an EV version to follow. I don't know when that's going to be coming, maybe like 2024. Who really knows at this stage, but it's in the works. So, yeah, it's unclear if this hi- uh, electrified version is going to be a hybrid or a, a, a plug-in hybrid version, but there's going to be some form of electrification. It could even be like a mild hybrid system in all honesty, um, just to kind of give more, uh, I expect, maybe like a power boost to the to the V8 engine, which is going to be very exciting as well. Um, there's a video that's going around as well from Chevrolet that um, – posted um, showing the front wheels spinning as well. So that potentially alludes to the um, the Corvette becoming an all-wheel drive model as well, which kind of throws another element into the works where the Corvette has always kind of been the rear-wheel drive car, adding that um, extra axle of um, power of drive being sent to is going to really change up the dynamics of the Corvette, I believe. And um, so, yeah, this EV version that's coming after the electrified version is going to be built on um, the Altium platform, which you might have heard about before with um, a whole range of um, GM cars. It's going to be based on the, the passenger car version of, the, of that platform, not the, the huge one <laughs> like the Hummer EV, kind of more like a scaled back version, which is kind of the whole point of the Altium platform. It can be scaled to a whole range of different vehicles, which is really exciting. And um, But, yeah, there's no word for the EV version as well, uh, any of the, the electrified Corvettes that are apparently in the works um, how much power they're going to have. So it could be a lot more than the current one or it could be similar. We'll have to wait and see. But um, what do you guys reckon of an all-electric Corvette? Are you going to miss the sound of the V8? Um, Well, I remember covering this kind of thing a really long time ago. The electrified Corvette rumours have been around for a really long time and I think given where the industry is heading at the moment, it was always inevitable that these iconic super sports nameplates are going to go either hybrid or all-electric. We're seeing it with Lamborghini, Ferrari, all the big names, Porsche as well and there's, there's no doubt that um, GM is going to take this path as well. It'd just be interest, more or less interesting to see how they do it because a, a Corvette hybrid, for example, can still offer that signature growl that you know the classic ones are known for and the, the V8 noise that um, Americans especially, especially know and love. But it'd be even more interesting with when the, once they go to the full electric stuff to see how they keep the soul in it because we're seeing now that um, full electrification gives a lot of new brands an opportunity to come in and um, make a name for themselves. Look at Tesla. They sort of redefined what um, luxury performance cars are with the the amount of acceleration dialed in something like a a Model S played. Um, But, yeah, I guess there's a a lot of – opportunities there we're seeing you know lotus has come out with the avia is that how you say avia and you know that's a complete change for the brand but they're obviously claiming that they can still dial in some of the brand's core dna into that despite the lack of you know noise so i guess it will have to sort of wait and see and 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 see what they come up with one more thing to mention is that Chevy isn't alone in exploring the EV space with its sports cars, especially because Dodge is um, planning this big EV muscle car that it's been talking about for a little while now that's apparently going to be as tough as like a V8 and uh, going to have the same kind of persona as a V8, but in an all-electric form factor. And so, yeah, we'll have to wait and see if Chevy and Dodge really can bring the the V8 heritage into the new era with an EV. It's really exciting. It's, it's funny how you, you brought up the word muscle, uh, Jack, because you you automatically match muscle car with a V8. Is Absolutely. the term muscle car going to disappear soon once all of these high-powered cars are going to turn EV or hybrid? What are we going to call them? we know that, uh, that the marketing departments in these car makers are undefeated when it comes to this stuff. We've got the Porsche Taycan Turbo and Turbo S, the Tesla Supercharger. I don't think muscle car is going anywhere. (laughs) Good. Uh, More news can be found at Car Expert. Thank you, Jack. Quick. Thank you as always, Mandy. 
Let's chat about the latest comparison up at Car Expert. And JWO, you gave us a bit of a teaser a few weeks ago uh, in an intro about the Kia Stonic versus the Ford Puma. Yes. Interesting choice. Why did you put these two together? I uh, just felt like it. <laughs> in, in all seriousness, um, I think I had one of them already booked in and I thought, you know, how can we maximize um, our content opportunities here? And the the two vehicles I put together are there because they're both sort of Eurocentric. Both cars were designed primarily for Europe. They're both very similar on paper, having three-cylinder turbo petrol engines. They're both um, equipped with seven-speed dual-clutch transmissions. They're both based on um, popular city hatchback nameplates. So the Puma is based on the Fiesta, which we only get as an ST these days. Um, and the Sonic is obviously based on the Rio. So both of those um, hatchbacks have a legacy nameplates that have been very successful in our market and probably well known by a lot of people in Australia. And these are sort of like the modern interpretations of what they are for more people. So um, light SUVs as a segment are a really strong segment these days. There's quite a few competitors. Um, they VFAX actually split it off to further differentiate it from the small SUV class. And between the light and small SUV segments, there's quite a lot of sales volume growth in, in recent years. So it's a, it's a really... Um, it's a growing segment. Um, there's a lot of new competitors always, and um, it's a it's a segment that a lot of manufacturers are constantly looking at and trying to find ways of um, getting into. So that was the the main premise behind it. Originally, the Ford Puma was meant to be a base spec car because in terms of pricing, they're about the same as a, as a top spec Stonic. So the, the Kia is very much a value play in that segment. The top spec one is like 32 grand drive away. Um, but we ended up with the top of the line ST line V Puma, which... Uh, once I worked it out using the local configurator is uh, as tested with all the options fitted is a $12,000 more expensive vehicle. <laughs> so that um, there, there was a couple of things there, obviously um, mechanically they're quite similar. And so it was, it was good to see how they play out on the road and the different approaches that the two companies have made um, in these two competitors, but also is the Ford a $12,000 better car? Cause that buys you a half of a second stunning. It's interesting, actually, you mentioned the price of the Puma. That bumps it up almost to RAV4 or CX-5 money. Mm -hmm. In what world would someone be looking at a small SUV like that instead of a CX-5 with a decent level of spec or a RAV4 with the hybrid powertrain? Um, well, as, as I get into in the comparison, we can probably chat about this further later. The, the, the Ford is very much like a – it's very – premium in the sense that it's it's got a lot of design wise and and equipment wise it's very well featured um it looks sporty and it, it drives really really well there's a substantial amount of engineering that's gone into it and i think we've all at some point said how we find the ford puma to be one of the best driving small suvs and it gives off almost like a little mini bmw feel um and i guess you know you can have a fully decked out puma for the price of a you know a low to mid spec mid-size suv like a cx5 or a rav4 um and it's european designed engineered and produced um it comes from romania for us so you know if somebody that wants a, a high spec sm smallish european suv if you're looking at like some of the german brands um from the premium side of things you're looking at a lot more money than this uh and you know if you're Perhaps somebody that doesn't have kids, whether you're younger or older, try not to um, offend anybody by, <laughs> by putting people in age brackets. But, you know, this is for, for two people, this is plenty of car. And then it's got the occasional use second row and it's got cool quilted leather, leatherette seats. It's got a stitch dashboard, digital driver's display, a really good infotainment system. And if you spec it with the park packet, like um, our test car did, it's got all the driver assist systems that you'd expect of a higher end car so it can basically drive itself on the freeway um, it's efficient it's fun to drive you know and it's something a little bit different because unlike something like the ranger ford's european products don't really sell in huge numbers so there's a, a niche aspect to it as well mm. I, su I suppose um design anyone has their own opinion on it but which one do you think uh, style wise is is easier on the eye or, or more fun to look at there's only one correct answer to this. Sorry, I know I'm jumping in here, but there's only one correct answer to this, and it doesn't start with K, James. <laughs> oh, okay. I thought you were going to go the other way. Oh. Um, I, th I actually like the design of both of these. The um, 
the Kia came in a, a white body with a black roof, which I thought looked cool. Um, and the mm. Puma was in this really lovely red. And in ST Line B spec, there's a cool like dotted chrome grill that sort of looks like uh, a Mercedes grill, but without the big star in the middle. So there's quite a lot of chrome, and it, it actually looks really nice with the red. Because I think red's a really classic luxury color, and if it's done well, it can actually look quite nice, especially these days where everything's like white and gray and all of that um i think and i sort of i went into this in in the review as well i think while i like both of them and i perhaps am drawn to the ford personally because it's got like that, that, that baby aston martin look and obviously all the chrome and stuff i think the kia is a more um conventional design that will probably appeal to more people it's got a it's it's got a really nice wide hunkered down stance it's got more of the suv look with the chunky cladded bumpers and and you know the the roof racks and things like that i noticed that some people whether it was responding to some of my social media posts or whether it's somebody that saw it um they sort of look at the front and they go like what's that it looks funny it's it's a bit of a polarizing car so i think the kia probably does it for more people i personally like both and um, I wouldn't necessarily choose one over the other purely based on design. Which one do you think is the, the most practical inside for maybe just a couple? Um, well, I found that the, the Kia um, felt more airy and spacious in the cabin. It definitely has a much better second row. So if you're carrying people that aren't in child seats, I think the Kia is probably a better vehicle say you you needed like a, a compact second car to do errands in and or you frequent the city a lot but you want to maximize your space if you're carrying people in the back you're, you're going to want to get the kia the the puma actually has the bigger boot at least in terms of capacity so um they're it's sort of a hard one because the, the Puma presents better. It's got nicer finishes. It feels a bit more upmarket and obviously has some of the cooler tech like the digital driver's instrument cluster. Um, but in terms of practicality, the, the Kia probably takes the, the win there. The Ford is actually one of the smaller cars in that segment when you look at the back seat and the boot. I know it quotes a really good boot number, but the shape and the, the way that it's all used, the space back there, mean that if you are carrying big things, unless they're shaped very specifically like the boot of a Ford Puma, it's actually quite difficult to get them in there. Mm. Um, whereas the Kia being based on a Rio, although the number is quite similar on paper, the boot's actually much bigger than you'd expect. Yeah, it's just a really big square boxy thing and it's got the edges rounded off a little bit to make it not look like a rolling cube. But the Sonic <laughs> is actually surprisingly practical for such a small car and I've actually had a couple of friends or friends parents ask me about it because they're looking for something that's a bit smaller dimensionally um, but they still want that jacked up ride height and something that can still fit things in it and that seems to fit the bill for a lot of people in that regard as well yeah well I suppose we probably should ask the most important question which one drives better uh, the Ford. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> to, to put it quite simply um, in isolation the Kia's like fine it's it's fairly relaxed it actually drives a lot like my sister's polo um with really the, oh. yeah because like the the way that the lower spec polo engine because my sister's got the 70 kilowatt one and the kia's got 74 kilowatts from memory so that lower powered one cylinder uh, one liter three cylinder engine almost behaves like a diesel it's very talky very relaxed um kind of thrummy and rattly um if you give it some beans and um it's obviously geared for efficiency so you're not meant to be even though it's got a gt line badge on the boot and some cool styling bits on it it's not meant to be driven hard um it even starts up in eco mode by default which i found very frustrating <laughs> but um you sort of learn to work around it and if you're just putting around town it's very relaxed i feel like it the, the drive experience um appeals to someone that maybe perhaps a little bit older that is more relaxed with their right foot likes the smoothness or the refinement of just sort of like getting along um but the ford is the one that you pick if you actually enjoy driving for example if you're you know if you've got a partner that is insisting on buying an suv but you're like oh, i actually like something that drives well and that i want to get behind the wheel of the ford is arguably the best handling um small suv by some margin and in this comparison test it was quite incredible the stark difference in behavior between the two cars given they both have very similar mechanical pa packages the ford's um dual clutch transmission is very very tuned so well almost like a normal automatic you don't get that really laggy hesitation off the line which is actually quite evident in the kia they both have idle stop start as well so that's something that adds to that 
but the, the Ford gets up and goes really quick. It shifts really intuitively. The steering's really um, well-weighted. It's quick. It's it's almost like driving a jacked-up go-kart. Um, it's super, super fun, and, and the eagerness from the powertrain is noticeable as well. It's about a second quicker um, from what I've seen from European specs, um, and it definitely felt like that behind the wheel. You don't you don't feel like you have to wait for the turbo to spool up, and you know it feels like it doesn't really want to do what you're asking it to when you plant your right <laughs> foot. It really gets up and goes, and is a, a really good time. So the the Ford easily um, is the the driver's pick there, and it doesn't necessarily mean it sacrifices ride quality either. Even though the ST Line V uses sports suspension, um, it's got a really good balance of um, um, dynamic ability and comfort dialed in. So it's obviously a little bit firmer than a standard Puma and perhaps even more firm than the, the Sonic GT line, but it also has a really good level of comfort dialed in. You're not um, jarring it over um, bumps and tram tracks and that kind of thing. So it's actually a, just a really well-rounded package. And like I said before, it's just a shame that not more people buy them because I think anyone that gets behind the wheel of a Puma will be like, this is actually quite fun. And you have to remember, you have to compare it to competitors. You can't compare it to a Focus for most buyers because most focused buyers wouldn't be looking at a, a crossover and vice versa. Also, you can't buy a normal Focus anymore. But, mm. um, yeah, I think you know, when you compare it to its rivals, it's so much more fun to drive than anything else that I can think of. So It is, it is a shame that we don't get the, the Puma ST in Australia because it would be completely unique. Even the Volkswagen T-Roc R is a bigger car than this. Um, that Fiesta ST is so much fun to drive. So the idea of a body style that maybe more people want and what I think is quite a cool-looking car in the Puma in ST, guys, in Australia, I think it'd be awesome. Yeah. Um, did you, while we're still on the driving topic, J-Wo, did you get a chance to take them out on, on freeways or in the, the country? Yeah, not country, but I did take mm. it on a few freeways, both of them. Um, they're both very surprisingly capable on the open road. Um, I guess the European influence there means that they were likely designed to be on high-speed freeways well beyond 100 kilometres, oh, like course. you'll find um, is the limit in Australia. <laughs> but, um, yeah, both of them are quite confident on the open road. They can handle 100 and 110-kilometre-an-hour um, roads more than fine. Um, and the Ford does one better in offering some of the higher-end driver assistance systems that you would expect of a vehicle that would be um, – more cable on the open road. So it's got um, the, the optional park pack adds things like adaptive cruise control with active lane centering and blind spot monitoring stuff. You can't get blind spot monitoring and adaptive cruise on the Kia, though it does come standard with lane centering. Um, and it just means that, you know, with the Ford, it basically has level two semi-autonomous driving ability and you can take the load off on a longer journey. The only thing I will say is that given their more humble um, beginnings, both cars aren't the best with sound insulation, rough highways will transmit quite an echoey sound into the cabin from the road and that's really the only thing i can knock it for and probably more so the ford given it's at such a high price point um you could get something like a, a mid-size suv even even the escape which is within the same brand portfolio is mm. much more refined on the open road and comes with all those driver assistance systems and standards so you know you can get an escape st line with much more power um, and much more space and much more refinement for you know not much more than that Puma ST Line B. So, so they're they're both actually pretty good on the freeway. But I think the I would say to a buyer looking at these vehicles, if you're planning to go on the open road often, particularly a country highway, I would perhaps be looking at a size up. Okay, um, and and lastly, what's the cost of ownership like? Um, another surprise here was that even though Kia is pretty well known for having a really long warranty and, and relatively affordable servicing costs um, over the course of seven years, so I tried to give the Kia the advantage by giving it the full length of the program to assess running costs. Um, the scheduled maintenance of the Ford is quoted at over $1,000 less over a seven-year period than the Kia is. Um, on top of that, the Ford has longer service intervals, so you get an extra 35,000 kilometres to play with over a seven-year period 
if you um if you get the fort so um it was worked out to be about you know like two thousand one hundred dollars over seven years the first four services are 299 each and then they sort of move into the 300s after that the kia was a really mixed bag you have some that are in the low 300s then there's a major service at one point that's about seven hundred eight hundred dollars um and most of one thing that we constantly knock here in hyundai for is that a lot of the turbocharged petrol models only quote ten thousand kilometer intervals which if you're doing a lot of driving is not favorable because it means you spend more time in the shop um mm. so yeah but in terms of fuel economy um under that same running cost umbrella they're about the same in terms of fuel consumption they're both we saw about mid sixes for both with mixed driving including um urban commuting and freeway driving um one thing i will note though is that the kia has a bigger fuel tank and is able to run on 91 um octane regular unleaded whereas the the puma requires premium so it will get you a little bit further courtesy of the bigger tank and it also costs you less because you can use regular unleaded so very important at this time isn't it mm-hmm. that comparison is live now at carexpert.com.au Tony Crawford has once again been driving some pretty amazing metal. This time, it's the 2022 BMW i4. Hello, Croft. Howdy, Mandy and co. And I was just listening to JWO at the end there talking about unleaded. Well, one thing this thing doesn't need is unleaded fuel. <laughs> Good. Um, so what exactly is the i4? The i4 M50, because that's the only one I've driven, is the first... BMW all-electric M car. So it's uh, history-making. When you say M car, do you mean like an M3 or an M4 or do you mean like an M340i? Because that badge is on a lot of stuff at the moment. That's true. It's actually uh, technically an M performance car. Um, but its performance as such would would have it compete with a full-strength M ice car it's quite weird um yes it's incredibly incredibly fast it's uh 400 kilowatts and 795 newton meters from uh, from a five door don't forget this is a five door so it's got uh which is one of the things i got in it and i was you know i'm as in my review, please read my review. I think it's a very good read if I don't say so myself. And as others have told me today, I might add. Um, uh, but it, 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 it's incredible in the fact that you can literally jump out of an ice car into this car. And I was really panicked because I haven't driven a lot of electric cars, uh, as I say. And in, in fact, my whole time would be not more than a couple of hours in electric cars. Um, it's bizarre, I know, you know, 16 years in the business and I've not driven many. Um, so I was really panicked about this thing, getting in at BMW Sydney where the car, where I picked the car up from and thinking, okay, how the frick do I get out of here? Like, what am I doing here? So, like, you just get in, it's got a shifter, it's got a blue button for start, stop. I hit the button, put it into drive and away I go. And um, Rolf, what sort of range do you get from it? What's the claim? Here, okay, the claim is very interesting. The claim is up to 485 Ks. However, I like to drive around in sport and, in fact, sport boost. <laughs> more, sport more, boost. Yeah, sport boost, which gives you 50 kilowatts more and 65 newton meters more when you give it the beans um and that's where you get the full complement of 400 kilowatts and 795 newton meters of torque and you'll do 100 not to 100 in 3.9 seconds however i'm reliably told by insiders that it's substantially quicker and i have read on my review various comments which say that top gear did a not to 100 test and got three seconds so it 100% feels a lot quicker off the mark than than 3.9 seconds. Um, well, what about the range, Crawl? It was started about the range. <laughs> yeah, sorry, the range. The range is up to 485. However, if you drive it in boost mode, I only saw 395 kilometres. Um, apparently, in order to get that top claimed range, you need to be driving it in eco Pro, which uh, you know, who would do that? People, no, some you actually would do this in electric because it's not as slow in an EV as it is in an ice engine car. 
um, because EcoPro in any ICE engine car is is um, torture, essentially torture. Um, you know, <laughs> it's so bad. It has nothing going for it. But in electric car, you still get a big wad of torque in um, from the from the get go from zero, right? And Croft, this is like a like a tech flagship car for BMW. I know you like the way it looks outside. I don't know that I agree with you, and I know James feels the same. How do you feel about all the tech inside it? It's got a new operating system, and it's Love all very it. flash. It's it's a, it's it's amazing. It's really amazing. It's got fourteen inch. Well, first of all, it's one giant screen. Uh, from the looks of it, and it's a curved screen like Samsung used to do with their uh, OLED uh, screens. Um, and this is beautiful. This is, for the first time, BMW have now uh, uh, matched Mercedes-Benz in the clarity and the, and the, and the beautiful crystal clear, clear colors you get from this screen. I'd go one step further and say Mercedes-Benz screens are, all, are a little busy for the average person, there's a lot going on, and you kind of sit there a bit um, stumbled um, in, in that. Okay, where do I start? What do I do? But the BMW, even though it has this amazing screen technology and the touchscreen on the 14 inches, incredible for its response rates and and the quickness and the the wireless the wireless um, CarPlay is there before you even virtually sit in your seat. It's already up and running. And it does that every time you get in it. I thought it was incredible. So I would say that, you know, compared to Benz, which has great screens, this is actually more, feels like it's more integrated and more uh, more intuitive uh, for first-time users. And I know, you know, that first-time users is a bit irrelevant when you buy a car because you're going to get used to it in a week. Uh, so that's out the door. But this is just a – it truly is a spectacular car while, um, while being – ever so intuitive when you first get in it and then to drive it around you you sort of learn it on the run and there's no you don't feel like there's any need at all to pick up a manual or look through the manual on the screen um as i often do in in our volvo that's already four years old i'm still having to go into manuals to work things out sometimes so (laughs) yeah it's it's incredible what what i think the big thing here is that this is a performance M. This is not a full strength M car, and yet we're thinking it does, you know, naught to one hundred in three point five or less. What will the i four M do? Yeah, I, I think that's going to be a you know a full mission car. That thing, like you know, and how does it handle? Because I know there's a lot of really fast electric cars in a straight line, but they're also big and heavy, and there's a lot of mass in weird yeah. places. Does it feel like an M car to drive? Yeah, 100%. And it's a really good question because I, I could not believe – I had to ring uh, the PR guy at BMW and, and, and I wanted to know how heavy this car was because it didn't show it on on a lot of the, the PR, the press kit, if you like. Um, and I was flabbergasted when he told me it weighs, you know, just under 2,200 kilos. And – I, w- I didn't believe him. I said, there's no way, dude, because I said, this feels like, from me behind the wheel, I feel like I'm driving a carbon-bodied car. That's how responsive the turn-in is up front and how this car feels. Even the doors feel light. I f- the doors feel like carbon doors. So how could this possibly weigh 2,200 kilos? I, it's, a, it's a feat of engineering, which I have no idea how they pulled off, but this car does handle. And let's... You know, let me make a distinction. Being a performance M rather than a full strength M, this is not a car geared for track use. And, and that's the difference that BMW, that's a distinction that BMW make between their M performance cars and their full strength M cars. So the full strength M cars like the M2, M3, M4 and M8 for that matter are, are very much track capable cars, whereas this is designed not to be. But I'll tell you what, for the road, it handles exactly like an M car that you'd expect an M car, and it feels like an M car when you turn in and the steering and the way. But but let's get one thing really straight. Where it starts to really shine is ride comfort. So it has air suspension on the rear. This is the oddest thing I've ever heard of. Air suspension on the rear and coil steel springs on the front. And when you give it the beans from a standing start, it lifts up like a powerboat before it planes. <laughs> and, it, yeah, it's really – look, what? I didn't notice it at first and then 
BMW guy said, have you seen how it lifts up? And I said, no, let me let me do it right now while you're on the phone. And, and it did. It lifted up like it, it didn't seem to affect the dynamic ability or, or handling of the vehicle. But the ride comfort, even in Sport Boost, was astonishing. Like it, it just crushed all these potholes that, have, that are remnants like a war zone in Sydney after the deluges we've had. And uh, I, I really found that amazing because BMW for a moment there – a moment in time, last gen, was producing cars that were really hard riding. And I was one of the, you know, I, I didn't like them at all. And this, I, I think BMW are back on track in so many ways. And, you know, people talk about Tesla Model 3 performance, it's faster. Well, maybe it's faster, but if we believe Top Gear uh, at, at three seconds, not to 100, well, then this is faster than a Model 3 performance. But as I said in my review to the comment, you get what you pay for. This is a beautifully built vehicle. I think it looks great. I think it looks aggressive. I've come to terms with that big nose now, and I, I, I've seen it in a car park where I park every morning in white, and it looks – it's so – it's got so much presence. I'm not saying it's beautiful, like a 1974 three-litre CSI, I put in my review. It's not beautiful, but it certainly has presence and aggression that you expect in a BMW M car, mm. albeit um, a performance M. How much is the i4 and do you think it's it's worth its money? Well, here's the thing, Mandy. I, when I called Nick to ask him, the PR guy, I, I, how much is it? I'm expecting 170 grand. Here we are with a five-door, very large car. Well, well, a large car, family car, liftback, plenty of space with every known bit of kit in it as standard. No longer is there massive options lists with BMW. There is option packs, yes, but this car only had about, uh, well, here's the price, 124990 plus on roads. I was expecting thousands, tens of thousands more for this car, mm. given the way it looks, what it is, the range, the performance, the power, everything about this car smacks of high-end build quality and luxury. So 124990 and and I know what people are saying in the comments. We've got quite a lot of comments on that review at the moment. So if anyone cares to uh, read through that review on carexpert.com.au. But people have talked about Tesla Model 3 performance. Well, I don't know. Unless someone does a V-Box on this car and Top Gear is saying they have and they got 0 to 100 in three seconds, that, that will make it significantly quicker than a Model 3 performance even though the Model 3 performance is about 25 grand cheaper. But you get what you pay for, as I said. This, the Tesla does not have the build quality of this BMW. This is a luxury, luxury car with every known bit of kit in it as standard. Um, the biggest item in, this, um, in the options that this car has are sports comfort seats, and they are worth, I think they're five and a half grand or something like that. But uh, the rest of the stuff is really quite uh, cheap, 1200 bucks for this, 1200 bucks for that. Um, so I, I would think, yes, it is worth it. The Tesla is cheaper, but you get what you pay for. And that's the case in life. Like, you know, it's not a Tesla is not a BMW. It's got one giant screen in the middle, nothing in front of you. I think it's an, a, a typically ugly vehicle, the Model 3. <laughs> Um, and horridly ugly, if I'm uh, if I'm really honest with myself, it's a hideous thing that looks like it's been designed by no one that has been to an art design school. Um, <laughs> if I can say that, whereas the BMW has massive presence, and um, I like it. I think the color that this car was in, frozen Portimao blue metallic, is absolutely outstanding and a proper M color if there ever was one. You know. So, Croft, to wrap it all up, yes, because I know you could talk about this car for 19 hours, <laughs> um, is this the car that would make you go electric? Would you buy one? Would you daily it? Oh, yeah, um, 100%. This is I, – I kept, you know, I kept wishing I had that cash um, after selling my 911. I, I, this is the car that really you can jump into with no experience with uh, an EV and, and enjoy this car. Maddie, this is one of the most thrilling cars I've driven all year, probably in the last two or three years. And I say that, I say that coming off the back of driving some really, you know, impressive stuff like the 296 GTB Ferrari, um, the, the, the Porsche GT3, 
and and this uh, you know DBX seven hundred seven Aston Martin SUV. These are incredibly uh, accomplished cars, but. I had just as much fun and just as much excitement every time I got into this thing. And I haven't told you about the sounds. I've got to tell you about the sounds. They're created by they're created by Hans Zimmer, the famous German Hollywood composer, That's and he's cool. created these uh, these sounds. And I've called it I've called it M Turbine. And I'm hoping BMW actually pick up on that and start using that. Well, as Croft said earlier, the review is now at the site, so go and check it out. Thank you, Tony Crawford. Ciao. (laughs) (laughs) Another podcast has ended for this week. Um, Any highlights worth noting that's up on the site now, J-Wo? Uh, well, we've had a couple of pretty cool launch reviews go live. So Scott did a very brief drive of the GR86 prototype um, from Toyota. We all know what the UBRZ is like. Um, we've both driven them and reviewed them and whatnot. It's a very good car, but um, he's got some initial thoughts from this brief launch drive. And Albors has also um, reviewed the pinnacle of what he believes to be of luxury SUV motoring in the Range Rover SV, which will be live on the site. So um, could be a very interesting comparison between that and the Rolls-Royce Cullinan if we can wrangle those two together in the one spot. <laughs> does, does SV stand for Super Veloce? No. Okay. Special Vehicle <laughs> Operations and the O is very silent. In the <laughs> <laughs> um, and any events and launches as well? Uh, so this coming week, we've got a Maserati event. I'm not quite sure what they're talking about, but hopefully it's good. Um, Paul's actually in Portugal as we speak, testing out the all-new Mazda CX-60, um, mm-hmm. which is pretty exciting before it heads here in the latter stages of the year. Um, Will Stopford is in Canberra driving the Grand Cherokee L, which is another big launch from the Stellantis group. I'll be joining Honda for a um, launch event for the new Honda HRV, and I'll be reviewing that next week, but the driving impressions are embargoed for the following Thursday. And there's also a Nissan preview event, which I believe is a rundown of some of the products that they're launching in the coming year. So actually, quite a bit going on this coming week with events. Good to hear. And do we have plenty of cars in the garage, Scully? We always have plenty of cars, Mandy. (laughs) Uh, In Melbourne, we've got that Honda HRV, the Volkswagen Tiguan R. Can't wait to have a spin in that. A BMW X3 M40. So it's a good week to be a performance SUV. Uh, A Mazda CX-5 and then a few other SUVs, a Ford Escape plug-in hybrid and a Lexus LX600, the petrol, sports luxury. So a lot of grill and a lot of petrol in that one. (laughs) Um, And up in Sydney, we've got a Toyota RAV4 Cruiser Hybrid. And then up in Brisbane, a Skoda Kodiak and a Porsche Macan. Oh, sweet. I'm assuming the Macan is going to Boars and the Kodiak is going to Will. Yes. Yes. Skodiak, I should say. (laughs) Skodiak. We always say that. Uh, James Wong and Scott Colley, thank you. Thanks, Mandy. Thanks, Mandy.